Disclaimer. This video will be me bashing something. I will be doing so with an analytical mind, or at least trying to, but if you are the kind of person who comes to listen to my videos or watch my videos uh, for positivity and uh, generally, you know, a more idealistic, optimistic, etc. viewpoint, and I don't blame you since, you know, well, I'll talk about it in a second, please don't watch this video. I honestly debated not even doing this one. I really sincerely debated not recording this video, and it was only my streamers uh, just yesterday, actually, who uh, my yesterday, who recorded, uh, who convinced me to go ahead and record it. My show has always been about two things, honesty and positivity. The idea of really being honest with you guys, never trying to you know, whitewash or make up thing or try to be nicer to something than I should be or more unkind to something that I should be. As was pointed out, and as I, my, I myself have pointed out, even though I railed on Mass Effect 3 when I was replaying it for the for the lore run uh, last year, at certain points in the time I was still so also praising it because there was good stuff in it. That's that honesty, right? I'm not just going to bash the entire game because the whole game isn't bad, right? That's also partially that positivity. I prefer to be positive. I prefer to gush and enthuse and share in that enthusiasm, like I just talked about with Galaxy Quest. I rewatched this movie last year with my sister. You're probably tired of hearing that. And we both really didn't like it. Her biggest complaint about it was the fact that it looked like it was trying to have a theme and didn't. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I rewatched it with analysis mode on, uh, I guess, two days ago now. And I hated it. In fact, I hated it so badly that I have nothing positive to say about it. Before I did this, I, I swore I would have at least one scene that I could say, yes, that was a good scene. No. So if you like this movie, please stop watching this video. Please. And if you like this movie, feel free to tell me why. I, I, and I wonderfully would love to hear people who like this movie. You know, like I did with Star Trek V, like I, did, like I did with Star Trek IX. If you like this movie, that's awesome. And feel free to tell me in the comments below. I know Taitu at the very least wants to say something about how I'm an idiot for just not understanding this movie or whatever, you know. This is also going to be a video in a different format than my usual, because this is going to be a little more stream of consciousness. I can't just go through the movie um, chronologically, because it you have to look at the whole work to understand why it's so fundamentally broken. So which is why I'm just going to do this. In actual fact, I wish I had a recorder in my head. I know that sounds weird, but uh, when I was trying to go to sleep the night when I finished watching it... Uh, I basically did the whole rumination, or rather, lamentation in my head when I was laying there, and it was actually perfect. I wish I could just you know, repeat that word for word, and it would be great. But that reminds me of another thing I want to mention. Some of my viewers don't fully understand this, so I want to make something clear. This is my third lamentation. Ever. Star Trek V wasn't a lamentation. Dragon Age 2 wasn't. Mass Effect 3 wasn't. You know, I... Lamentation is something special. It takes a lot for something to really dip that low. And for the most part, if it's a, something that I would lament, I probably wouldn't do a video about it to begin with. I don't even like Dark Souls or The Witcher games. 
Those weren't lamentations because there was a lot to praise there. There's a lot of positivity there. Lamentation is basically as far down as I'm willing to go for my show. That's why there's only been three ever, this being the third. The really sad thing is when I look at failed books or failed movies like Into Darkness or uh, Revenge, of the, uh, Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers, or uh, games that have serious flaws to them like Dragon Age 2, usually I can look at it and say, oh, it could have been great. It was, it, was, it was so possible for it to be good. And I could see how that would be possible because I could just look at it and be like, ah, well, you know, all you'd have to do is da 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 and it would work. But when I really started digging into the behind-the-scenes of this film, I came to a really depressing conclusion. And I, I have no joy in sharing this. I think Nemesis was doomed from the beginning. I think it never had a chance to be a good movie. Obviously, some of this is conjecture, but I don't feel like separating the fact from the conjecture right now. <laughs> okay, you know what? Fine. That, that's doing you a disservice. I'll go ahead and separate it. I'll go ahead and separate it. But there's very little conjecture here. Let me go ahead and just give you the conjecture right now. Um, the conjecture is this movie was designed to fail. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You know what the term milking means, of course. A lot of franchises will reach a point at which they feel, uh, you know, the studio or the people who own the IP feel the franchise has run its course. And they just want to milk a little more money out of it. So they push out a couple of really cheap films or games, this happens in games too, that are very cheap production-wise. I don't mean necessarily cheap in quality. Every now and again, we'll actually get something good out of this. But they'll push out something very cheap in quality, at, or, or excuse me, very cheap in cost. It's very cheap for the studio that will then make money back. So, you know, net profit, right? You know, it's a way to milk it. You know, it's not really that important because they don't care about creative creativity. They don't care about, you know, the, the history of fiction or the idea of preserving culture or art. They don't give a damn about that. They just want a few extra bucks. So what we have is a situation in which Every sign of everything I read points to the fact that the studios involved here saw how Star Trek, the movie franchise, was going downhill. And at this point in time, Enterprise was doing really badly because this was season one Enterprise when they first started working on Nemesis. So they said, screw it. Star Trek's on its way out. Milk it. There's one other thing that I have. Now, that that's the conjecture. Um... That's basically the all of the conjecture right there. That's why I, I said I'd go ahead and separate it. <laughs> um, everything else I'm about to tell you is a little more factual. Let, let's look at a few facts. First of all, do you know the primary job of the executive producer in a film? I'll go ahead and tell you it. Your job is to own that film, okay? Your job is to make sure it has what it needs to succeed, to defend it against the money people, to try and make sure it gets the budget it needs, to try and make sure it has the access to the resources and the talent it needs, you're basically the head of that film. Now, the director is arguably the person who has the most influence on what goes up on the screen. The actors and screenwriters and editors and sound designers and composers and, and you know, the hundreds of other people involved all work on that. But the person who makes sure that all of that happens is the executive producer. Uh, I may be using the wrong title, forgive me. Uh, it's the guy who is in charge. And that guy in charge for this movie was Rick Berman. You probably already see where I'm going with this. I've spit a lot of bile at Rick Berman over the years. But nothing pisses me off more than what he did here. Because Rick Berman is probably single-handedly the man most responsible for Star Trek dying. Now let me pause for a moment to have a little reality check. First of all, Star Trek has not fully died. Now, 
there's two ways this is true. Number one, we have Star Trek 2009, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek 13, which is being written by Simon Pegg and a guy I've never even heard of. I don't even know what's going to happen with that, but whatever. Um, so, you know, that's still going. But Star Trek has basically ended because that's a whole new canon. Kind of. I mean, it is connected. It is connected, so it's not really a new canon, but its stories have nothing to do with the rest of Star Trek. Now, that's not a complaint. I like Star Trek 2009, and I like that they did that. I, I think their method of keeping going and rebooting it was actually really intelligent and, re and really uh, smart, and I'll talk about that next week. But the point is, the story of Star Trek, which was pretty unfinished, I mean, you know, DS9 ended... Well, okay, DS9 had a lot of epilogue, but there were a lot of stories left there. And then Voyager gets home, and then nothing. You know, that was... And then Nemesis, well, that's this one, you know, doesn't really do anything to this franchise. So that story was, was left unfinished. However, that story has continued as well in a game called Star Trek Online. If you've not seen me stream it a few thousand times, I recommend Star Trek Online, if for no other reason than for the story. It's a buggy game. It feels like a free-to-play game. The ground combat's crap. I love the space combat, and the story's amazing. There, there's, there's my, like, one-sentence summary of SDO in a nutshell. But it has continued the storyline, and that's the thing it has done the greatest service for and why I recommend it. So, Star Trek has not died, but the odds of us getting a new Star Trek show at this point in time are pathetically small. And I hope to God I'm wrong about this, and by the time this video goes live, I'm already proven wrong about that. Because as of when I'm recording this, Star Trek Renegades, which has already basically been completed, is currently, ha the people who are behind that are already going to CBS saying, we want to turn this into a full-time show. You know, either on CBS or on Hulu. Please let us do this show. To my knowledge, there is still no word from that. Even though that's actually been a thing that's been going on for, I guess, about two months now. So I'm hopeful I'm wrong about that. But we have no new Star Trek show. And as like I said, there's probably not going to be no movies with that. And, well, the new movies have been receiving less and less support behind the scenes. Uh, 2009 had a lot of support. And then Into Darkness had basically none, relatively speaking. And the new one, well, let's just say that it's very unlikely it's even going to be finished in time for the anniversary next year. <sighs> it's also worth noting that franchises can and have died and then come back. I can name three, all of which are science fiction, right off the top of my head. Doctor Who, Star Trek, and uh, Battlestar Galactica. All three of these died, but then came back. Doctor Who probably being the most egregious example, but Star Trek did die for quite a while there, if you think about it. So, I mean, you know... <laughs> it, it, I'm just doing this to give a little bit of a reality check to the next thing which I'm going to say, which is, Star Trek frickin' died because of Rick Berman. This movie killed Star Trek. Now, like I said, you're like, well, Enterprise wasn't doing well. Yes, when they started making the movie. I'm going to give you a, like a visual representation of the figures. Now, I know, real, again, a reality check. The figures of a show don't really just show how good of a quality the show is, but they do say how much, how likely it is for a show to keep being on the air. Enterprise started here pretty high. People were pretty jazzed about Enterprise. Season 1 kind of did this, and then Season 2 did this. Now, i got to raise my hand a bit, because we started right up here, right? Season 3 stopped descending as fast. 
Now, you might be like, well, that's odd, because I thought Season 3 was really good, and I myself have recommended Season 3 many times. And that's because it takes a while for word of mouth to get out there and people to be like, oh, in other words, all those people who, who left watching Enterprise had to be convinced to come back with basically the argument of, no, really, it doesn't suck anymore. And you can understand why that argument is, it falls flat. So the figures continue to drop in Season 3, but much less. However, thanks to Season 3 and Season 4, the figures then started going back up. Quite a bit, actually. And they were continuing to rise, and they already had plans for Season 5, which was going to have Shran as a major character, a main character of the crew, which would have been awesome. And that's the point at which Nemesis came out. And, they, and Nemesis was what we call a sacrificial lamb. This is the kind of thing, uh, I forget the exact movie it went up against, but one of the Lord of the Rings movies came out when Nemesis came out. Now, you only do that if you're doing it as a sacrificial lamb. You're like, well, this movie isn't going to perform well anyways, so here. If you look at the, the, the sales figures for that weekend, it's kind of sad, really. So the movie underperformed like crazy, and then they decided to pull the plug on Star Trek entirely. Canceled Enterprise, canceled you know any future plans or anything, and put the entire franchise on ice for quite a few years. Now, if you're paying attention, though, I mentioned earlier that this was deliberate, that this movie never had a chance, that they were milking it, right? I, I'm trying to just... I, I, I'm stuttering because I don't even... I'm so upset about this, and I know that's stupid. But because they, they went out to make a bad movie, to milk it for money, and then when it underperformed, they went ahead and shut everything down. It's self-fulfilling, in other words. It's, it's, it's the exact same you see in corporate America all the time. How many times does a manager come to you and say, I want you to do this job with... Well, no, the manager comes to you and you say, well, I want to do A. And the manager says, well, you're not going to succeed today. And he's like, and, yeah, no, I can do A. So then he, get, he says, okay, you can do A without the resources necessary to do A. And then you struggle to do it and you fail. And he says, see, told you. And then he shuts down the project. How many of you out there have had that happen to you? I sure as hell have. All the damn time, I might add, in graphics design and in networking both. It's a very common thing, and I've, I know plenty of other people who have the same thing happen to them all the time. And it's pretty common in, in, uh, in the entertainment industry as well. So yeah, very self-fulfilling there. But let's talk about why this is all Rick Berman's fault. Like I said, Rick Berman owns the film. I don't mean like it's it, he he owns the rights to it. I mean you own up to it. You 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 own the situation, right? You you stand. It's like okay, this is my responsibility. This is my duty. This is my privilege. I need to do my best, right? That's that's what I mean by that. So Rick Berman was told by the studio, "We want to give you the worst director in the history of film, Stuart Bear," and Rick Berman said, "Okay." You see the problem already here. Now, I'll talk about more about Stuart Bear in just a second, but let's let's go into the... We need to rewind just a second. First Contact did really well. Yay. Insurrection did not. Insurrection had a great initial release, and then its sales figures just plummeted, which was underperforming. They did make their money back, but I believe Insurrection is actually uh, the second least selling of all the Star Trek films, the only one worse being Nemesis. That says something. And so the studio was like, you know, you need to you need to fix things for the next film. So Rick Berman said, you got it, and fired everyone else. Now, I don't mean everyone, everyone. He kept a few key figures, but for the most part, everyone who had been working on Star Trek 7, 8, and 9 were shoved off to the side and fired and, and moved off the project. And Rick Berman said, okay, fresh start. 
however, there's, there's a, there's two problems with this. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, a fresh start for Star Trek might've been the exact thing it needed. And I know what else you're going to point out if you're a Trekker. That's exactly what happened to Star Trek two all the way back there. Motion picture underperformed. They wiped the board clean, brought in new people and they made Wrath of Khan. Two differences though. First of all, they didn't wipe the board clean after Insurrection because Rick Berman was still in charge. And if you paid attention in the last few movies, you know that Rick Berman has been a key figure in screwing them up. Even First Contact was worse than it should have been because of Rick Berman. It's got to be a time travel story, you know? And there were some issues with budget, but we don't want to get into that. Um, let's just say the Borg battle should have been a lot better, or longer, excuse me. So, whatever. So... Rick Berman decided that the one man who'd been consistently making bad decisions himself should stay in charge. Everyone else was removed. To give you an equivalent of what this was like, it would have been like if Roddenberry had been left in charge of Wrath of Khan in, uh, after the motion picture wipe. That sounds really mean. I, I don't want to compare Roddenberry to Rick Berman because I hate Rick Berman, but it's the kind of the same thing because, as I said, Roddenberry does actually deserve a decent amount of the faults that, that you know, the problems that went into the production of motion picture. As I mentioned, he, he delayed a lot of shoots. He insisted on a lot of reshoots. That's a big contributor as to why it went over budget, okay? That's why they moved him aside. Rick Berman kept it, stayed in charge, so that's the first problem. Second problem, a second difference between the Wrath of Khan thing. With Wrath of Khan, the people in charge looked at people who were basically at the beginning of their careers, but already showed promise. Now, I've talked about that concept before. The idea of showed promise is you obviously have the hunger for the, for the craft. You want to do better. You care about what you're doing, and you suck, but you have great potential to be better, right? So they took a brand new aspiring director who had already shown a great deal of promise, Nicholas Meyer, and they took a writer who really knew what he was doing, Harv Bennett, and they took those people and they took a lot of the, the visual design. I don't remember all the names right now. I talked about them back in Wrath of Khan. They pulled a lot of people who was basically young blood, who knew what they were doing, beginning of their careers, pushed them forward, and they got something great. What'd they do with Nemesis? Well, you probably don't even know the name Stuart Baird. I had to look it up. This man is an editor. To my knowledge, I may be wrong about this because I didn't research him that much, he, I know he never directed anything before this, and I'm pretty sure he's never directed anything since. And that's a good thing because he's probably actually the worst director I've ever seen in film, and I mean that without exaggeration. The man does not know how to direct. You know what? I take that back. He's the second worst director because I just remembered Battlefield Earth. Anyways, second worst director I've ever seen. The man does not know how to direct. He does not know how to pull a performance out of his actors. He does not know how to pull, pull energy out of a scene. He does not know how to put emotion into a scene. He can't do a damn thing with the camera or the people in front of it. And it shows in every single scene in this movie. Pay attention to the performances if you ever choose to rewatch this, which I don't blame you if you don't. You may feel free to take my word on this because you don't want to rewatch this film. They act tired. The whole film. All the actors just act like they're weary of the role. It's not like they're... I would almost call them irritable, as weird as that sounds, but that makes perfect sense because they had to deal with an idiot. Let me give you a key difference between Stuart Baird and Nicholas Meyer, even ignoring, you know, the unquantifiable talent, which is a, a gray area that can't be defined. Let's give you a factual difference between the two, okay? When Nicholas Meyer was brought on board, he made it a point to go back and rewatch all of the original series because he wanted to soak in the mythos and, and really immerse himself in the character so he felt like so he could do it. Nicholas Meyer is a big character director, so that makes a lot of sense, and character writer for that matter. So he really put himself into the thing. When Stuart Baird came in, he actually refused 
to watch the next generation. He flat out refused to. Now you could be like, well, next generation is seven seasons and the original series is three. No, that no, that <laughs> if you can't make the time to go watch seven seasons of something with the kind of money he was making in that industry for something you're gonna be doing, screw you. So that's a pretty diff severe factual difference between the two that doesn't rely on intangibles. Hmm? <sighs> Second problem. I don't remember the guy who actually wrote this script. Uh, he's not what I would call a really good script guy as far as dialogue and whatnot. And it kind of shows. But I didn't realize how much of a hand Brent Spiner had with the script until I was doing research for this video. No offense to Brent Spiner, but... Well, some actors can branch into other things, directing, writing, producing. Some can't. For example, Leonard Nimoy has proven himself to be a pretty good writer. William Shatner, not so much. And I mean no offense to either man, or well, I guess I mean no offense to Shatner, but the point is Brent Spiner, and again, no offense, really does not know how to write anything, as is shown by his contributions to this film. So then we have the final problem here. After Insurrection, Nemesis's budget was actually pretty threadbare, relatively speaking. Um, it wasn't... I, I'm, it was medium. They had a medium budget. That's actually a good way to put it. Their effects budget was pretty decent. They, had, they were able to put a lot of effects into it. But their ability to do uh, location shots and that kind of thing was pretty hampered. It's one of the reasons why basically everything occurs on a set in this entire movie. And... Uh, there's a lot of politics that goes into movie making, unfortunately. And I've talked about this before, you know, the idea that some actors have enough pull, you know, it's an intangible quality, enough pull to be able to move a movie or push a movie or persuade people with regards to a movie. I've talked about George Clooney, who's a man who has a tremendous amount of political clout in Hollywood, and the man can do a lot of things to move or push a movie. Some other actors and directors even simply don't have that kind of push or pull. Stuart Baird wasn't a director. He was an editor who was pushed into the directing job. Oh, and, and side note, while we're on the subject, Stuart Baird, in addition to refusing to watch TNG and pissing off half the cast, if you watch the interviews, some of them actually just have to have to contain themselves to not spit venom at the man. Um, okay, let's rewind a second. LeVar Burton is awesome. I think we, most of us can agree on this. He's a talented actor. He's a great director, producer, and writer. He's, he's one of the people who was in, uh, in charge of the, the Screenwriters Guild, I believe. Uh, I actually meant to look that up, but I forgot. But either way, he's a man who has gone on to do a lot of really great stuff after Star Trek. And he is a very talented individual who is a great director, as I've mentioned before, and really made an awesome career out of being in Hollywood, you know, right? I mention that because Stuart Baird, who's never been a director before in his life up to this up to this movie, couldn't even get his name right. Kept calling him Laverne or a few other variants on that. Could not actually get his name right, and for some reason he kept referring to Jordy as an alien. Now you may say, well, that's just a niggling detail, but I want you to imagine that you're on the set, and you're doing your job, whatever your job is. You know, it doesn't have to be a set. You're doing your job, and someone, your boss, basically keeps referring to you in the wrong sense and getting your name wrong, constantly every day and tell me that's not going to grate on your nerves and tell me that's not going to affect your performance on your job so Stuart Baird who's an idiot <laughs> had no backing whatsoever and the studio put basically no political support into this movie at all so it was basically floundering 
again from the beginning. Now you might be like, well, all of this sounds like the movie was doomed, but maybe a good script could have uplifted it. You know how I keep talking, and I've done this pretty much ever since the motion picture. Each one of these movies, uh, with some exceptions, had a, a slightly different initial script. And a lot of those showed a lot of potential. I talked about the one that might have worked for Star Trek Three. I talked about the ones that might have worked for Star Trek Nine. you know, etc., etc. This is the initial script for Nemesis. There was no original draft. The whole plan was always this. We need, And this is so great, though, because one of the things that I see amateur writers do, not bad writers, amateur writers, people who are new at writing, is they want to explore an idea, you know, a theme or a concept or whatever. And I just realized I'm sagging a lot. I'm literally physically tired from, from talking about this movie. Um, they want to, to, you know, examine transhumanism, right? The problem a lot of amateur writers tend, uh, tend to have is they don't know how to do that. So what they do is they, like, say, this is going to be a film examining, for example, just to pull something out of random, nurture versus nature, which was the intended theme of this movie, of Nemesis. The idea of, you know, differing life experiences, creating a whole new person, even from the same source, that kind of thing. Again, nurture versus nature. But rewatch this movie, or again, don't, and take my word for it. It's not ever really brought up. It's not actually a theme. And this is what so many writers do. They're like, this will be a, a, a work about this. But they don't know how to discuss it, so they just kind of let it sit there. Like, they, like the statement. There are three scenes in this movie that really touch on that at all. One is during the opening title crawl, with the R facing each other. One of them is, when, is a scene that doesn't actually discuss it, but is like about to and then stops. It's when Picard and Shinzon are talking uh, down on Romulus, and... You know, it, it's like they're they're literally one step away from actually discussing the idea of the theme, and then they stop. And the final one is a, a like a thirty second scene between Picard and Data right before the big battle scene, and that's it. Those that that that's all they got. So there's no theme. There's no significance to the plot. The plot is dumb, as I'll be discussing. The characterization is non-existent. Uh, there is zero character growth, and Troy is raped in this movie. And I just feel like dropping that right that because I want to stress this. Who, in their right mind, thinks that having a main cast member be physically violated in such a horrible way, it's actually mentally violated, but I'll be blunt, the difference is non-existent in this case because she's a freaking telepath. So, violated in a sexual manner. Who thought that would be a good idea on a Star Trek show or movie in this case? Someone tell me that. Someone tell me what was the point of that. What did that do? What did the added value of having Troy mentally violated actually accomplish? By the way, there was actually a cut scene. There was a cut scene where it happened again because they just couldn't get enough of doing that to Troy. I'm not a big feminist kind of guy, mostly because I think that the word feminism is thrown around in a way that is inaccurate. I think equal rights is a duh factor. Whether you're male or female shouldn't matter except for a few minor things, right? That's just my perspective. So I don't really consider myself a feminist. I consider myself a, we're human, the end. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't want to get on my horse, so to speak, about a feminist topic, but really? <laughs> really? Now, to make this clear, her gender doesn't matter, if I can be blunt. It could have been Riker. And it would have been just as stupid, just as pointless, and just as offensive. Why? Why does this happen? It, it could have been Worf. Well, it still doesn't mean anything. 
What does this add to the movie? Hmm? I want to lay this out for you. Shinzon spends so much of the beginning part of the movie pretending to be a good guy. We must have peace. And then he mentally rapes Troy. That's how the good guys find out he's a bad guy. Really? This is a good time to talk about why Shinzon's a goddamn moron. Let's look at his plan, shall we? And the funny thing is, if you examine every command decision he makes in the entire film, they're all dumb. 100% of them. There's a scene where he walks into a room, sees that uh, uh, one of his medical officers is, is just barely recovering, and shoots him. That's a dumb command decision. Especially since that's one of the medical officers who is responsible for saving his life. Dumb command decision. There's a scene where he, he is, uh, comes down and starts, decides to stare at the Enterprise one by one. Dumb command decision. Then when the Enterprise comes at him, he decides to hard deport. Which, since he's stationary, will do this. You might not see it. We'll do a top-down view. It'll do this. <laughs> Dumb decision. And then, when he's in, when he has the Enterprise completely at his mercy and the two have rammed, what does he decide to do? Full reverse. <laughs> Dumb command decision. Every single one he does is stupid. But let's look at his overall strategy. Okay, here's his big plan. I'm going to kill Earth, and then we're going to win. I sometimes wonder if Shinzon actually is Rick Berman. So, let me add something my sister added. I just feel like sharing about Shinzon really quick. She believed, and I actually agree, that Shinzon should have been played by Patrick Stewart. It would have actually had more impact if they did that. IMO. And Patrick Stewart actually knows how to act, so he might have actually been able to pull it off. No offense to, I don't even remember his damn name with the weird frickin' lips who played Shinzon. Oh, you're probably wondering, well, why did they pick him? I'll tell you exactly why they did. It wasn't because he was of his acting talent. It wasn't because he was a Star Trek fan. He was sexy. I'll have to take their word on it. I'm not into guys, so I can't speak on it. Anybody out there who's into guys, feel free to tell me if you find Shinzon sexy, because I look at that and I think, oh, my sister found him repulsive as well, but, you know, that's just one test subject, so that's not really definitive. Point being, they, and this is admitted, this is not speculation. They brought him in, that actor, whose name I don't know, to be Shinzon because he was sexy. They wanted to sex it up. So, let's look at his overall arcing plan here. Okay, so... I'm going to blow up the Federation's homeworld and then win. Why don't we ask the Japanese how that worked out in World War II? Hmm? Because there's no denying that the destruction of Earth would be a really crippling, devastating blow to the Federation, but forgive me for pulling a little bit of a Hitchhiker the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy out here, but space is big, okay? Like, really big, okay? That's a planet. That's not even a grain of dust in the ocean compared to what the Federation is. Do you understand? And they, this is a Federation who is probably at its strongest it's ever been in its history, even with relativity, taken, you know, even with you know, um, uh, inflation of, of military power taken into, into account. This is, a, this is a Federation who has just gotten off of fighting its second war in a row and has been prepared to fight the Borg and has actually successfully combated the Borg in more than one occasion. This is a federation who has a massive industrial military complex and lots of people who are very motivated to defend their people and unfortunately are not thanks to natural selection and the fact that there's been a war. Most of the surviving members of Starfleet and the upper echelons are, are at least 50% likely to be really good at their jobs as far as combat goes. And you think taking out Earth is going to bring that giant to its knees? Really? 
really. <laughs> so that's the first dumb thing. Now you might be like, well, he might threaten to use the weapon on other people. Oh, no, he might use the weapon he only has on one ship against other worlds while they're busy destroying all of the Romulan Empire. It doesn't work that way. It's stupid, and it's a dumb command decision. Now, this is the best part, though. This is so great. The reason Shinzon becomes Praetor is because he murders the entire leadership of the Romulan Senate, which... Reality check for a moment. That means there is no leadership of the Romulan Empire. I know, I know, there's the military. But the military doesn't run the Empire. They don't keep the trains running, if you follow me. There's so many aspects to running a government and running a, a, a galactic empire that, well, at least, you know, a sector, you know, sectors wide empire that, that you've just annihilated and you, you have no backup plan for running this thing. You're just saying, I am in charge now. And, and assuming that it's so without having the ability to actually imp implement that at all. So that's the first thing he does. He wipes out the leadership of his own people. Then he gets the support of the military. How does he get the support of the military? By agreeing to wipe out Earth, which will lead to the conquest of the Federation. Huh? And then, just to add on to this fact, the reason the military decides to stop supporting him is because he's going to wipe out Earth. I know some people are going to pull it technically into the middle of this. One. So, in the interest of fairness, it could be argued, somehow, that the Romulan military did not think he was going to destroy Earth, but merely conquer it. That brings me to my next point, though. Even if that is valid, which... I'll allow it, because I'm about to destroy you with my counter-argument. Romulans... I, I, I like to think of myself as a decent... Uh, per, a guy who has a decent feel for a lot of the races in Star Trek. And Romulans have always had an interesting uh, ideology. You know, very emotion-based. Lots of uh, home. Emphasis on home. Emphasis on the family. Emphasis on loyalty. They're, they're more than willing to do despicable things to other people. But one consistent fact about Romulans is they are not butchers. They are not the Dominion. The Dominion considered wiping out Earth. You remember that? Weyoun recommended it. And he was probably right to do so in the cold calculus mentality of it. Because, but that's the Dominion. These are the Romulans. The Romulans don't exterminate planets. They conquer them. They claim them. Because another aspect of Romulan society is superiority. We are better than you. You know, the concept of infinite expansion, as it was explained and ex described. The fact that, well, I don't want to spoil Enterprise, but let's just say that the Romulan Star Empire had a lot to do with Enterprise, and that's all I'm going to say about that. And it supports the same idea. Conquest, not killing. There's a huge distinction between the two. So it would make sense in the sense that, you know, well, we want to conquer Earth, not destroy it. So that's why they changed their minds. Okay. But that doesn't change the fact that the, Ro the Romulan military was still willing to go forward with this plan to conquer the Federation. Again, a huge tract of land. <laughs> massive, massive areas of space with tons and tons of military firepower. And the total... I mean, you can't just say... Okay, I used Pearl Harbor as an example earlier. I actually have a better one, also from World War II. Do you really think if... Germany had taken Moscow, that the Soviet Union would have collapsed and surrendered? The whole Soviet Union? I know this is a 
big debate point amongst historical uh, historical people, especially amongst war historians. And I know that one of the most commonly debated things is the what ifs of the World War II. But I'm one of those people, and I know and I know a lot of people with me on this, and I've argued this one many many times or discussed this one many many times. Even if Germany had taken Moscow, the Soviet Union would have crushed them like a bug. It was literally only a matter of time. They had all of that industry, all of that land, all of that motivation, all of that personnel, all of the material. They would have, it would have been a crippling blow, just like losing Earth would be. But their de Germany's defeat was assured, I guarantee you. I mean, this is just my guarantee, but still. So, you, okay, you've taken out Earth, you've conquered Earth. Now, how do you, in you know establish your rule over the rest of the Federation. Keeping in mind, part of your plan was wiping out your own leaders. So you have you don't even have the ability to run your own planets. And now you're going to try and manage those ones? Which outnumber you like three to one? And this is also ignoring the fact that if the Federation decided to come back at you, they would have a lot of allies in doing so. Which, uh, I'm going to ignore all the, the little ones. Let's just talk about the big ones. The Klingons. Do you really think for even a millisecond, that Martok, who was at this point in time the Chancellor of the High Council, and his upper echelons of the Klingon Empire, would stare at a dirty, underhanded attack on the heart of the Federation on their former allies, and not say, even if the Federation didn't ask, even the Federation didn't go to the Klingons, I guarantee you the Klingons would have said, screw you Romulan bastards, and ground them into the dirt. There's a good chance the Cardassians would even want to support this, for God's sakes. And they're in ashes at this point in time. For crying out loud, this is the dumbest plan I've ever heard. Well, that's that's not true, because I've heard Jar Jar speak. But the point is, this is, this is dumb. This is the basic premise of the plot. By the way, the Romulans are the bad guys. Why? Because they have no brains. Let's look at some more details of how stupid they are. So Shinzon has a big strategy. It's okay. I'm not just going to have this super weapon and the Mary Sue ship, which, oh, I haven't even talked about the Mary Sue ship yet. Probably the thing that pisses me off most because I'm a big ship person and the Mary Sue ship makes me want to smack it until it bleeds. Anyways, Shinzon has the Mary Sue ship, the super weapon, and the ability to kill his own leaders. <laughs> and the weakness to light. Because <laughs> they're oryx. Um, and he, his, his, his big plan is I'll get all the, the details and all of the Federation's battle plans and charts and I'll know everything and be able to circumvent them everywhere. How does he plan to get these things? Oh, that's simplicity itself. I'm going to magically get a hold of the first of the androids from, from Soong's work, which has never been mentioned before, haha, <laughs> or, uh, and indeed since, and I'm going to just put it into pieces with a little extra programming that I put in it, put it into pieces, bury it on a hostile world with hostile aliens, and just hope that somewhere along the line, the, the you know, and the Enterprise itself comes down and finds it and then bring and, and then reassembles it and then connects it up to data and then allows him access to stuff and then he can go and recover uh, B4 and take all that precious data. That's just the best plan ever. It only has about 20 different things that can go wrong with it, including the fact that it's a dumb plan to begin with. Speaking of which, you might be like, well, he knew he was going to get the Enterprise-E. I mean, he needed Picard for his plans too, right? Yeah, except that's not why the Enterprise-E goes to Romulus, is it? They go because they're nearby. They go because of luck. Which is dumb, because 
he's the praetor. He could literally say, I request the flagship of the Federation. Doesn't even have to say the Enterprise. I request the flagship of the, Inter the Federation to join us on a mission of peace. And again, keep in mind, recent allies, thanks to the Dominion War. So this isn't even out of bounds. He could have just made that diplomatic request, and boom, there he's got the Enterprise. No, 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 he's going to rely on Locke. Also, Admiral Janeway. That, that's all I'm saying about that. So, <laughs> then they bring him over, and, and, and this is great, because the good guys are actually just as stupid overall in this thing. I mean, I've been bashing Shinzon and the wrong ones, but let's look at the good guys. Oh, we found uh, you know, Android signals. Let's put them together. Let's hook them up to Data. Keeping in mind, Data has access, and, and, and thanks to his memory, has the memory of a ridiculous amount of sensitive and confidential information, but let's just download all of it into this Android we just found. I mean, it, it's not like he could be secretly evil and impersonate Data and try to feed us to the crystalline entity, right? I mean, that would never happen. We've never had something like that be a problem before. <laughs> God. <laughs> so then they go to Romulus. And now we see Shinzon's brilliant tactical mind in action. By the way, part of the reason I keep bashing Shinzon for being stupid is they make a point of saying how he's a brilliant leader, just like Picard, right? Except, no, no, he's, he's a frickin' retard. I'm sorry, I mean no offense to retarded people. I apologize. He's dirt. He has the IQ of dirt. Like, you you give him the IQ test, and except you're giving it to a clump of dirt. That's how dumb he is. So, he's on a ticking clock, right? Because he's dying. Because of his, his cellular degeneration. Because of the stupid reason why he's a clone. Okay. So, you'd think he'd be in, I don't know, a bit of a hurry? Now, you might be like, well, he wanted, you know, he mentioned, he was curious about Picard. He wanted to mention, yeah, that doesn't explain the first thing he does, which is make them wait umpteen hours. I forget the exact number. It's like 16 or something like that. Make them wait for no reason over Romulus with no contact or communication for no reason. Well, maybe it's an intimidation tactic. He's on a deadline. He just wasted a half a day or whatever sitting there doing nothing. In the Mary Sue ship. Just, da, 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 I'm just I, I just picture Shinzon doing this. Trying to practice his cool poses. Like, Then he goes to the mirror and he's like, okay, I need to look all intimidating for when I meet Picard. I need to... And he's practicing his movements, you know. Because he's just that stupid. So then they actually meet him and he's like, oh, I am here. And I want to make a big reveal about the fact that I... Okay, fun fact. When they first revealed Shinzon and it was a human, my first reaction was, wow, it's a human. At no point in time did it occur to me that it was supposed to be a clone of Picard. Really. Because the actor, whose name, again, I don't remember, really, really, really does not look like Patrick Stewart. At all. In fact, the way they did his hair, or lack of hair, for my sense, he actually had less hair than Patrick Stewart does and has forever. Yeah. <laughs> so... He does his big reveal. He uh, it gets really creepy about Troy, because you know that's just so wonderful. And then, um, and then he brings him down. And then he says, "Tomorrow we'll do something." So you know, again, no rush, right? So then, then he has his visit with Picard, which is the only thing that's actually debatably understandable. And then he has his big visit with Picard, and then he goes back up, and then he threatens the army military. And this whole time, he's just delaying, 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 delaying. Then he decides, and again, this is where we get back to the Troy thing, to mentally rape Troy because that's just the most brilliant thing you could do after you've just spent th two and a half to three days 
trying to establish some semblance of I mean actually going out of his way in most cases to to show that he's you know he's on your side I'm I'm with you we're, we're good guys you know this will all work out then he decides to do one of the worst things that exists by most versions of morality and ethics completely jettisoning that out the window and then he kidnaps Picard and, and beams away finally and then he hesitates on doing the Picard thing, too. He has to explain himself to Picard. It's like, no, I will do this for this reason, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... <sighs> I hate Shinzon so much. I could keep bashing his command decisions. I, I really could. I could just go down the list. But let's stop here, because I hit the major points I wanted to hit. Let's look at the Mary Sue ship, which I... I'm a big ship guy. I always have been. Naval ships, spaceships, sand ships. You know, I, I, that's been that's like the closest thing that I have to being a fanboy about. Like I said, I'm, I still would argue I'm not a fanboy because you know I've, I've defined fanboy and it's kind of an extreme that I don't really reach for. But you know, one of the things I loved about Assassin's Creed Four was the ships. One of the things I love about Star Trek Online is the ships. You know, I'm I'm big on ships, and I know I'm not alone in that. I know several of you out there are, are at least with me in some extent or another about enthusiasm about ships. I actually had a, a comment discussion back and forth with one of my viewers about you know favorite Star favorite Star Trek ships within the Federation. You know, and I know a lot of people really love the Excelsior, for example. I know a lot of people who really love the Nebula. You know, great stuff, right? Love it. I'm I'm fond of the Dideridex, as I've said many times. So the Mary Sue ship is, like, personally affronting to me. And I know it's called the Scimitar, and I don't give a damn. Let's, let's really think about this for a moment. This is a ship built by the Remans in secret. That's already setting off a big warning flag. This is a slave race of the Romulans who built this in secret during a war against the Dominion. Okay. So these... <laughs> downtrodden slaves and that's really important managed to create a ship that is the best ship in all of Star Trek this is a ship that could probably give the Borg a run for its money because of its pure Mary Sue-ness which is why I call it that let's, let's look at our credentials here a bajillion weapons huge ship and I mean colossal the, the Mary Sue ship is really really big I mean, this thing could probably injure a Borg cube by literally ramming it, for God's sakes. Um, looks incredibly deadly. Naturally, has to. It has to look cool. Um, it has a super weapon on board that can wipe out a planet, in addition to just killing everything that happens to be in front of it. Um, it has a carrier. It has a hangar bay. So it actually functions as a carrier as well. So in addition to being just generally an un ridiculously powerful battleship, it's also a ridiculously powerful carrier. Um, this ship has, uh, this ship also is as fast as Federation ships. Now, if you don't understand why that's significant, one of the things that's been established and, and re-established re over and over and over throughout all of Star Trek Mythos is that one thing the Federation has always been better at than all the other races is warp drive. Their warp engines are almost always more efficient, faster, cleaner, safer, etc. So, for example, the Enterprise D you know, an old Galaxy-class cruiser, could outrun a Dideridex. Pretty much one-to-one. -one. That's that's really common, right? The Simit... No, I refuse to call it that. The Mary Sue can keep up with the Enterprise E without issue while cloaked. Oh, that brings me to my next point. It has the perfect cloak twice. 
In all of Star Trek, this is the only ship to ever have a perfect cloak, to my knowledge. Feel free to correct me. But when I say perfect cloak, I mean every other cloak ever has had some way to get around it, some way to detect it, some visual distortion or some kind of energy emission or some kind of plasma leakage or some way to bypass it with uh, tachyon beams or, or some kind of mesh thing. You know, There's always been ways to get around the cloak. They're tricky. They're difficult. They're possible. Can't do that with this. This cloak is perfect. You can't detect it. It's utterly undetectable. And it's sectional. There's multiple cloaks, basically, keeping the ship cloaked. So if you manage to hit the wing and knock out that cloak, the rest of the ship is still fully cloaked, right? And, and this is the one that pisses me off the most, it can fire all of its weapons while cloaked. What? One of the things that's been established since forever ago, and I mean since the original series, is you have to decloak to fire your weapons. And it's logical. A cloak by its very nature would do, be an insane power draw to constantly maintain that kind of a field. Being able to fire with that thing on is insane. Even the Burrell, the, per, the, the unique Burrell back in Star Trek VI, could only fire torpedoes while cloaked. Because that's natural. It actually makes a lot of sense. A torpedo launcher is going to be a significantly less power draw than disruptor cannons, right? And even that was a brand new, state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line prototype, which didn't even, which didn't have a perfect cloak. I feel like pointing out, and again relied on its uh, basically a, a custom launcher setup, an energy flow setup, so it could actually launch those torpedoes while cloaked. That was like a unique of a unique of a unique. This thing could just fire everything wantonly while cloaked while having its shields up. I want to remind you that this was built by Riemann slaves in secret during a war. I hate that ship. I hate it so much. Every time I see it, I just want to slug it. Just right in its stupid face. And the final reason I hate that ship is because it's lazy. It's like when you're on the playground, and there's a kid there, and he says, I have infinity plus deflection of everything beam the kid who has no imagination who has no ability to actually think or be creative instead he just says i win that's what that ship is it's an i win button and i hate that and it's really irritating when a writer resorts to that kind of thing to make the enemy intimidating it's not like they couldn't have just made a more powerful dederodex keep in mind a dederodex is a ship that by itself could probably obliterate the enterprise d and therefore could probably be a good match for the sovereign so just make a beefed up to Daredex. Bam, the enemy's threatening. It's not that hard. The Romulans has always been known for their good ship designs. But no, you give this Riemann ship, and, and you, you just establish it in the script and in the, in the presentation. No, no, it's, per, it's, it's better than you in every way. The only reason the ship actually loses is because of, of Shinzon. Shinzon's constant stupidity and how he's doing it. Oh, one other reason this ship loses, and this is just brilliant. I, oh my god. You prob I know some of you were like, well, uh, Arsh, or Lowrunner rather. Lowrunner, I know exactly why they had the Troy needs to get raped scene. Z because that way they could have that great payoff where she gets revenge. That, that's, that's good, right? See, the way they beat the, the way they beat the Mary Sue ship is Troy psychically senses the, 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 uh, the Viceroy the one who was actually conducting the rape, which, by the way, is a whole other level of creepy... I don't know about you, but if I had to, you know... I, I can't rape anyone, but you know, if I had to have sex with someone and I had to do it while someone else was, like, doing this to me, 
Um, and knowing that they would both be seeing and feeling everything that I am feeling, that's really, really, really creepy. But I digress. So the, so she psychically connects with him, and, and ah, we, we attack him and damage him. Yes, we've done great things. And that's how we beat the Mary Susha. That's why you did it? You, I, I can actually imagine the riders having built this ship up to be this stu stupid, ridiculous doom weapon. And then they're like, wait, we need to find some way for it to be defeated. Now, that's actually a common problem with riders. You know, I've, I've built something up. How do, I, how do I break it back down? It's very common. So they decided, well, let's go just go ahead and have... And, I'm, and I, forgive me for keep pointing this in, but they have a freaking rape scene with Troy. Why? So they decided to write that in. I'm, this, I'm, I'm guessing here. So I'm guessing that they wrote that, wrote that in specifically as a way to lead to the thing where they could then defeat the, the Mary Sue ship. Because that was totally worth the payoff. God damn it. I'm sorry. I'm just... I am trying so hard to keep myself from actually yelling because my sister's sleeping and I'm angry and the microphone's right here and I don't want to deafen you guys, but really... Really? Yeah. Uh. Okay, calm, calm, peace. So then, like I said, the heroes are not... I mean... <laughs> this is a movie in which Picard, Mr. Prime Directive, goes down to on, on a non-warp planet and just starts shooting aliens wantonly and randomly for no reason in order to go run around and pick up the pieces of B4. This is a this is a movie in which Picard also dual wields akimbo style phaser rifles in order to fight his way through Riemann soldiers later on. This is a movie <laughs> this is a movie in which they <laughs> They manage to damage the ship enough so that it will... The only thing that's functioning is, is the beam, you know, the, the big doom destroyer weapon. So, but they've done... In doing so, they crippled the Enterprise beyond repair. So, you know, well, obviously not, but you get my point. And so they're going to like, okay, we're going to go ahead and destroy the Enterprise with the doom weapon. Then we'll warp to Earth and destroy it. That'll be my last action as a human being. That makes lots of sense. Um, you know, vent, spite, sure, whatever. Have I ever mentioned that this movie was deliberately trying to ape Wrath of Khan? I, I know that sounds weird because that's common knowledge, but I feel the need to mention it because I can't actually see anything but the most superficial similarities between the two. In fact, until I mentioned just now that the villain is willing to die in order to kill the bad guys with a doom weapon, that I realized that there was some similarity between the two movies. By the way, real quick, I mentioned this back in Star Trek 8, but this deserves to be repeating. This bad Xerox wannabe copy of Picard is not Picard's nemesis. He's not anything. He's like a whiny kid who constantly rants when he does that way. Oh, that reminds me of something else I want to talk about. Some people have argued that Shinzon isn't stupid. He's deliberately losing because his humanity, you know, would not allow him to do that kind of thing, which ironically would be very in keeping with Roddenberry's vision, which is something Rick Berman's always been big about, and also would add some actual layers of character to him, whereas his only actual characterization is stupid and, um, I, I guess whiny is really the best word for it. 
because every time things go wrong for him, he gets his panties twisted up so hard. He just, no, no, things aren't supposed to go this way. That's how he reacts to everything that goes wrong for him. That's not a villain. That's not even an after-school special villain. That's like... I don't even know what that is. That, that's, that's dumb. That's what it is. It's dumb. I'm, I'm losing my ability to insult this movie because it's so stupid. It's insulting itself for me. I don't have to say anything else, but okay. So Picard goes over and, fight, and is going to fight with Shinzon. Yeah, we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. First thing that bothers me. Why does Picard go over? I mean, you know, he has something to prove, but that's also a really dumb decision, tactically speaking. So, yay, the good guys are still being stupid, too. Um, the next thing that happens is Data uses an interesting trick and series of things to go over and save him. Okay, that makes a little more sense, even though the scene where he's flying in space between one ship and another is retarded. I want you to remember that, though. If you haven't seen it... Oh, well. But if you have seen it, just mentally picture the scene where Data lump, leaps from the Enterprise-E over to the Mary Sue ship. And keep it in the back of your mind, because I'm going to bring it up again in, two, in, in a couple of videos here when we get to Into Darkness. So it's a dumb scene. But that's mostly Stuart Bear's problem, because he's a terrible director. Um, Data goes over, blazes his way through the ship without any effort or, or whatsoever. Gets to the top of the ship, and he finds the dumbest thing I can think of. And every time I see this, it bothers me. Every single time. When I first saw this in the theaters, I actually started shouting at the, at the screen. And you might be like, how dare you? I wasn't the only one. My mother right next to me was like, what are you doing? Picard defeats Shinzon. Yay! And then he stands there. There's 50 phasers lying around, including his own, which is over there. And there's the, the weapon right in front of him, which is about to annihilate all his friends and, and family. Yay. And he's just standing there, slumping against the wall for no reason, for an uncomfortably long period of time. It's not actually that long. It's like 15 seconds. But still, you won. Do something. Now, we know why he's slumping there. It's so Data can come in and rescue him. But why is Picard like, well... I guess uh, everyone's about to die. I guess I failed. Well, that sucks. And then Data comes in, beams him away, says goodbye to the fans. That line is specifically Brent Spiner saying goodbye to the fans. And kills himself by destroying the ship. At the last second, of course, because it wouldn't be an action flick if it wasn't at the last second. One of the things that is hard to do is giving a character a satisfying death. And if you think Brent's, uh, Data's death was satisfying, keeping in mind Brent Spiner himself wrote it, then that's great. To me, it's a culmination of stupid decisions, stupid stupidity on the villains, stupidity on the heroes, and it all leads to a stupid conclusion and a big explosion that only happens because it was like specifically constructed so that the only possible way out was for Data to die. And that's because that's what happened. Again, amateur writing. You need to have a situation where the hero has to die and a lot of times writers who don't really aren't really that experienced or don't really know what they're doing will basically write just make the characters be retarded again, no offense to retarded people, so make them be stupid so that they're dumb and they're dumb and they're dumb and they're dumb and then oh no we've all our dumb decisions have caught up to us and now the only way out is to stab myself Ugh. that's basically what happens that's not a satisfying death and then they have an epilogue for him which is not a satisfying epilogue and then they have Picard talking to B4, which, okay. That's actually not too bad of a scene. Even though I'm not sure why they reactivated B4, but whatever. Um, and then, and, 
Ugh. Why? <laughs> I mean... I don't even know where else to go from this point. I mean, I could really get into the nitty-gritty. I could really start dissecting scene by scene how frickin' stupid this is. But I'm tired of ranting. It's, it's, been an, it's actually been emotionally exhausting to not yell. So I think I'm going to stop. I hate this movie. You know, I, I talked about in Star Trek Insurrection where I, I enjoyed the movie until I turned on rumination mode and then it just... My opinion of it plummeted because thinking about it made it worse. This is this is mind poison. You know, this is actually worse than Threshold. And I mean that sincerely. This movie is so bad it actually surpasses Threshold. And that's before you consider in the fact that this movie killed Star Trek. And again, I think the thing that depresses me most of all is I don't think there was any other way things could have happened. Really. With the studio not supporting it, with Rick Berman not backing it, and with brand new people who had no idea what they were doing, who were only in because of deals they'd made with the, with the you know the Hollywood deals. It's common. I've talked about this before. You know, do this movie, and then you can do this movie that you want to do. You know that kind of thing. Nobody gave a damn about this movie, and it shows. And I'm tired now. Next week we get to watch a movie that I actually enjoy, which may be a controversial opinion. We'll see how that one holds up when analysis mode is turned on. So, ugh. See you next time, guys.